Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, a former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. In this episode, Louisa is joined by Australia's former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. Now the global president and chief executive of the Asia Society in New York, and he's also the author of *The Avoidable War: The Dangers of a Catastrophic Conflict Between the United States and Xi Jinping's China*. This episode was recorded live at the Capitol Theatre in Melbourne as part of an event jointly organised by the Wheeler Centre, RMIT Live, and the Asia Society. Thank you all for being here. So, Kevin Rudd, it's just one day since Australia's Defence Minister Peter Dutton warned Australians to prepare for war with China. So it's great timing for a book titled *The Avoidable War: The Dangers of a Catastrophic Conflict Between the U.S. and Xi Jinping's China*. It's been described as penetrating and sensible by the New York Times, and an accessible primer by Kirkus Reviews. So let's talk about its core premise. You've been in such an unusual position as a sinologist, sitting at the tables of power, with this very privileged one-on-one access with China's leaders, but also being able to talk to them in their own language, unmediated by interpreters. That's something that almost no, you might be the only Western leader to have that. So, what kind of insights do you think you've been able to get from that kind of、uh, that kind of access? What kind of insights, either about The leaders themselves, or the structures that surround them, that other people might have missed. They like a drink.、Um, I think Chinese leaders are masters、uh, of the art of concealing their、uh, genuine worldview, because if you grow up in a Leninist party, which is the Chinese Communist Party,、uh, there are no rewards within the system for being free, frank, and flowing. In your natural views of the world, the craft of survival within a Leninist party is to be stum、uh, and to slowly broker your way to the top if you can. So it would be wrong of me to infer that、uh, there was this、uh, moment of the parting of the clouds as I got into our second glass of Penfolds with、uh, with Uncle Xi. G'day, mate. How are you? The, um, uh, with Uncle Xi uh, at uh, the lodge,、uh, but a few things struck me about him. One is, unlike his predecessor Hu Jintao, I've never had a conversation with Xi Jinping where he's had to rely on notes. He doesn't use briefs,、uh, and for those reasons,、uh, he is so confident of his political position. That he is not faintly concerned about straying five degrees to port or starboard、uh, in a given rendition of an official party position. I think the second thing that、uh, we spent most of the night chatting in Chinese about Chinese history, actually, because、um, I'd done four or five years of Chinese history at the ANU back in the Mesolithic period when I was a student,、um, and.、Uh, And what also struck me is that, unlike all Communist Party leaders in China, he's quite familiar with the Chinese classical tradition,、um, and that's not always the case.、Uh, 
So I often read criticism of him in the uh, Hong Kong uh, literature, which says that he's a bit of a dummy uh, when it comes to being, you know, well-read as a leader. That's not my experience of him. I think he's um, deeply steeped in the history of his own country, classical and modern. And the last thing that this is, I suppose, a pure political perception is um, when you encounter someone like him and you sense from the conversations that he sees himself as, quote, a man of history, unquote. That is, someone who's not just there to put in their time with the global political Bundy clock, you know, and then just move on and you're off stage. He sees himself as someone who's going to change the status quo ante. Um, from our perspective, for good or for ill, that's a separate question. Um, so I think they're the sort of things that, that I'd pick up from a conversation like that and others that I had with him. When he was in Canberra at that stage, I probably sat down and chatted with him for about six different occasions and uh, over drinks and uh, a fire at the lodge um, quite late into the evening. So, But as I said, you don't crack. He doesn't say after the second glass, well, OK, Kevin, I'll confess to our plan of world domination, and here it is. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. Uh, and by the way, the souls that will happen in 2022 will go to the Solomons. Uh, it wasn't like that. It's at a much more general level, the type I've just described. But I particularly enjoyed your description of uh, former President Jiang Zemin on his visit to Sydney Opera House demanding to sing on the stage. Um, I just wondered what he sang for you. A Solomio, <laughs> and, uh, which I won't even attempt here. And uh, I'll, I'll spare you of that. If you want real entertainment, uh, Moulin Rouge is up around the corner. They've got a bigger crowd, by the way. Uh, you, you're, you're all into intellectuals. You're here for this one. The, uh, no, no, no. He's a funny old guy, uh, Jung Zemin. He's still alive, you know. He must be 96, 7. <clears throat> uh, he's the guy who took over in 89 immediately after the Tiananmen Massacre. But there's an interesting contrast, isn't there? Because... Jiang Zemin is someone who's always kind of, he shows off by reciting the Gettysburg Address, he sings all Sole Mio in public, and, you know, he very much, in many ways, kind of reveres the West. What we heard of Xi Jinping before he came to power, we knew very little, we knew that he liked Western films. The WikiLeaks told us that he liked particularly Saving Private Ryan and Martin Scorsese's Departed. I mean, we know that he's a soccer fan, but, I mean, did you get... Any sense of how they viewed the West differently, these different generations of Chinese leaders, through your conversations with them or just watching them? With Jiang Zemin, I was too much of a junior woodchuck in the Australian Foreign Service at the time to have a mature view. I mean, I was in on meetings, but um, and I was uh, just uh, old enough to have sat in on Hawkey's meetings with uh, Deng Xiaoping. Hu Jintao I spent a lot of time with. I think on your core question, which is their views of the West, yes, you're absolutely uh, right in your observation of Jiang Zemin. He prided himself in having more than a passing familiarity with the Western political, philosophical and cultural canon. I'm not sure that's the case with Xi Jinping. Uh, as I said, he's deeply familiar with his own cultural canon which is no small feat given the length and breadth of the classical tradition in China. 
Um, but um, what I have seen from Xi Jinping, which goes to analysis rather than observation, if you go back to this marvelous leaked document from 2013, which you and I, I'm sure, have both read a thousand times, it's called, in the inimitable parlance of the Chinese Communist Party, document number nine, just to give it that poetic ring, Jiu <laughs> Hao. <laughs> Uh, of a scintillating address by Xi Jinping to the annual conference of the ideological and propaganda department of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, there's some bedtime reading for you. Uh, but you know what's really interesting about the, the speech? It's the only one we've got of his, frankly, both before he became numero uno and after, which is uh, a speech of his which is unvarnished. It is actually the transcript of what he said. It was leaked. They tracked down who leaked it, by the way, and they were severely punished. Uh, but it is a very stark rendition of his, Xi Jinping's, distaste for the Western intellectual and ideological and ideational assault uh, on what Marxism-Leninism stands for. And it's delivered in full vigour, full flight, without apology, unvarnished. It's a very hardline Marxist-Leninist speech of July 2013. And for me, that is still the most insightful document in terms of his particular worldview. In your book, you try and break down how the world looks from Xi Jinping's desk by dividing his priorities into 10 concentric circles. The most important, you say, is the centrality of Xi Jinping himself, the chairman of everything, as he's been dubbed by um, Jeremy Barmay. Um, and the Communist Party to the hard business of saying in power. Now, Xi Jinping has certainly centralized his control over the party, and you write how he presides over a surveillance and police state of unprecedented power. But, I mean, how do you see that? In the long run, does that kind of centralized control strengthen it, his hand, or does it weaken it sort of in the Putin style? You're right. In the book, I try to make comprehensible for the rest of us and intelligent readers in the non-Chinese world. Um, the world is seen from Zhongnanhai, the headquarters of the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing, the Chinese equivalent of the White House, and how it's seen from Xi Jinping's desk in particular. You won't find this in a Chinese text. They don't do it that way. It's my series of inferences um, looking at statements of priority uh, by Xi and the system to a large extent. But you're right to say that in the, these 10 concentric circles, the first and the epicenter of the concentric circles is keep the party in power and keep myself, Xi Jinping, in charge of the party. And so that is a galvanizing Leninist principle. Your question is, does that succeed in terms of his political longevity or does it in fact create the reactions which cause him to come unstuck? Uh, well, it, it depends on uh, our definition of uh, that elusive term, the long term, um, and how long is long, or as Maynard Keynes remind us, reminded us, in the long term, we're all dead. Um, so, so what does it mean? The interesting thing about Xi Jinping, the more you study uh, his writings, um, and unfortunately I have, because I've had to read them all, um, there's a lot, there's a lot in the Xi Jinping canon, uh, is that by instinct, uh, and there's enough that he's written on this subject, he's trained as a Marxist dialectician. 
Uh, how many of you have studied Marx here? Yeah, you see, it's a, it's a dying thing. Uh, I never studied Marx at university. It was kind of sliding out the back door of history, we thought, back in the 80s. Uh, but I had to reread Marx uh, to wrap my head around dialectical materialism and historical materialism, the two essential intellectual tools through which Marxist Leninists understand reality. And the reason I answer your question in these terms is he sees the world constantly dialectically, that is, a series of contending opposites, uh, always engaged in a permanent struggle for uh, the dominance and eventual um, triumph of progressive forces against reactionary forces. Um, and therefore, when he sees what he's doing at the moment in what I describe as moving the politics of China to the left, greater party control over everything in life, moving the economy to the left, less tolerance for the private sector, look at property and tech most recently and various other doctrinal shifts. And as I argue somewhat more contentiously in the book and other stuff I've just written, <clears throat> moving nationalism to the right. <clears throat> and when Xi Jinping has done those first two things in particular, uh, he has reached a conclusion that by doing so, uh, he is um, preempting dialectically the implosion of the Chinese Communist Party, which he concluded in his own writings, was becoming disorganized, indisciplined, corrupt, and ripe for collapse like the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in 1991. And so he is seeking dialectically to get, as it were, ahead of the curve. But as a dialectician, he'll also understand that when you do that and you push the center of gravity to the left, the reaction then emerges to the right of you. And that is what is unfolding within Chinese politics and the economy as we speak. Will it succeed in preventing him from his becoming effectively leader for life this November at the 20th Party Congress when he's up for reappointment for a record third term? At this stage, I don't think so. He's too powerful, control of the political and security apparatus. But there are social forces which he's creating because of his actions, uh, which will eventually accumulate and become stronger in their momentum against him. And his challenge as a dialectician in his mind is constantly to be half a step ahead of that process. And in doing so, he is a particular student of Mao. And I mean, you write about how he's using nationalism to try to counter those social forces, but nationalism in China can be a very dangerous beast. It can be quite uncontrollable. Do you think that the party has a lid on that once they start unleashing those forces? By and large, yes. Um, there are two theses, as you know, with nationalism in China. One we call the spigot thesis, and the other we call the Frankenstein's monster thesis. Here, uh, the spigot thesis is that you're, if you're a good Marxist-Leninist, you're controlling the spigot of a national propaganda flow on a given day, and you just turn it on, you turn it up, you turn it down, or you turn it off. And if anyone gets it too out of control, you go and thug them. The Frankenstein's monster thesis is that's all well and good up to a point, but there comes a point where nationalism, once legitimised for, for a season, becomes self-perpetuating and grows of its own accord and becomes potentially um, 
my term, not theirs, cancerous in the system. What's my analysis? At present, we're still in spigot land, on and off, but it's a big turn on in terms of the nationalist force. As you rightly pointed out in your question, it seeks to dilute uh, and compensate for the erosion of inherent political legitimacy which comes from depriving people of their previous political and economic rights because of his shift to the left on politics and the economy. And therefore, this becomes the other part of, let's call it, the uh, equilibrium of legitimacy within resilient authoritarian states, which is you ratchet up the nationalism in order to construct a different basis for legitimacy. I suppose Peter Dutton does that on a daily basis, but that's a <laughs> different political context. So there you go. I was doing well up until then, Philip, and, and then I just lurched into gross partisan politics. I'll promise to behave myself for the next three minutes, yeah. So I mean, the main focus of your book is this discussion of what might trigger conflict between the US and China, and in particular whether Beijing might attempt to retake Taiwan, which you say occupies a bigger part of Xi's political mission and mandate than any of his predecessors. And I mean, just yesterday, Peter Dutton, the defense minister, told Australians to prepare for war, to preserve for peace. Uh, he, and he made these comparisons to, of China to Nazi Germany. Do you think this rhetoric brings us closer to, to the avoidable war that you're talking about? Or are we just seeing the politicization of national security here? Well, I mean, I know Dutton reasonably well. He was in the parliament when I was there. He also comes from the People's Republic of Queensland, where I come from. And, uh, you know, Dutton is always, in my judgment, a bit of a a tin pot general uh, in disguise who likes dressing up, you know, in the camouflage of being appropriately martial and militant in order to make yourself look important and sound important. The substance of national security policy is a really serious business. I mean, I have chaired the National Security Committee of the Cabinet for three years. Uh, I know what it's like. It's hard. You're dealing with the intelligence community. You're dealing with the military and you're dealing with a series of other operational decisions. It's a really exacting process when taken seriously. And that's what we describe as operational national security. It's what you do. And without breaching any national secrets, I can tell this audience that in terms of our operational strategy in responding to China's rise when we were in office, we took a whole range of measures which were fundamentally displeasing to the Chinese government. However, we made a distinction between that and simply foaming at the mouth with a rolling declaratory strategy, which is what Dutton does, and Morrison, uh, who is basically Dutton in disguise uh, on China question, um, is that they are foaming at the mouth on these declaratory questions. You can declare as much as you like in order to make yourself look seriously hairy-chested on national security. But if your foreign policy has been an operational failure, which it has been in the South Pacific for the last nine years, through cutting aid hugely, not identifying with Pacific Island countries in terms of their existential concerns about climate change, uh, thirdly, uh, ignoring it in terms of the pace and intensity of ministerial and prime ministerial visits, and fourthly, abolishing effectively Radio Australia's shortwave capacity to punch in a message 
uh, to the 13 island states of the South Pacific. You put all that together, that's just operational failure, and it creates the vacuum into which other countries walk, like China has done. So that's actually the real national security debate here, uh, as opposed to someone, you know, doing a Benito impersonation, um, uh, as Peter Dutton does on a regular basis, thrusts his chest out and goes, uh, and argues that that is public policy. I mean, that's just bullshit. It's just a nonsense. Um, so we do face a serious challenge in terms of uh, China's uh, policies and operations, not just in the Southwest Pacific and Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia, South Asia, and across the Indian Ocean, which we professionally map in our think tank. Um, and these require quite delicate, uh, dexterous, hardline, hard-nosed operational responses on the part of the United States and its allies. This is not advanced one bit by just mouthing off for the sake of mouthing off. But of course, the objective of mouthing off is to construct a political constituency for re-election as opposed to actually solving a problem. Well, I mean, let's talk about that. Um, the new security agreement in the Solomon Islands that China has just signed. I mean, you've called it the worst Australian security policy failure in the Pacific, in the South Pacific since World War II. But I mean, how, how serious is it really? Prime Minister Sogavare has said no military base will be built in the Solomons. And Fiji signed a similar agreement with China a decade ago, and there's no sign of a Chinese base there. Are these concerns overblown? It's important to look at what's unfolded in the Solomons in the framework, within the framework of what has unfolded across, uh, let's call it Southeast Asia, uh, South Asia, the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea over the last decade, actually since Xi Jinping's been in office. You'll see the literature about China's so-called string of pearls, that is uh, bases which are dual purpose, uh, both military and, um, and uh, civilian ports. Uh, across uh, Cambodia. Uh, you see them being developed in Bangladesh, in Sri Lanka, um, certainly in Pakistan, um, and prospectively uh, in Iran. And then China has also taken a 99-year lease at, in Djibouti in the Red Sea. So none of that is an invention by me. These are empirical facts. <laughs> so. Uh, therefore, when I see that pattern of behaviour, I locate the behaviours in the Solomons within that frame. Uh, and whether it's materialised immediately or over time is a separate question. So, no, when I made that statement about the worst security policy failure since World War II in the uh, Southwest Pacific, I meant it. Because the bipartisan strategy of governments, both Liberal and Labour, since 1945 and the defeat of Japan has been to secure the Southwest Pacific and the Pacific Island states uh, as part of the um, strategic condominium of the United States, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and its Pacific Island partners without the intervention again of an external part power, which was the case with Japan. Why did Japan seek to take the Solomons and Guadalcanal? Uh, the reason was it was a staging uh, base for elsewhere. And there's a further point as well. If you look at the uh, strategic logic of such 
uh, a presence in a state like the Seoul's um, is that one of China's strategic ambitions is to secure its own long-term sea lines of communications, its SLOCs. And not just uh, the resources trade between Australia and, uh, and China, but also between Australia and Japan and Australia and the Republic of Korea, two of China's preoccupations in Northeast Asia. Also, if you look at the undersea cable networks which link Australia's telecommunication system with the United States, they pass through um, large parts of Melanesia. So these are real factors. So when I describe this as a monstrous policy failure for the, for the four sets of reasons I indicated before, which is this government talks a lot, Dutton never shuts up, but in reality they just drop the ball. They're like a commentator on a game, but they don't know how to play the game. You know? And that's what is actually worries those of us in the tradition of Hawke and Keating and myself and others who take the business of national security and foreign policy seriously. So, I mean, the main argument in your book revolves around conflict between China and the US. And in the desktop war game scenarios, Washington actually comes off really badly. As you say, losing to Beijing 19 times over in these scenarios. Um, a year ago, analysts specializing in Beijing's military were predicting that Beijing would try to take reta retake Taiwan in five to seven years. Now, your book was written before the Ukraine invasion, but do you think, how do you think Ukraine has shifted Chinese leaders' thinking on Taiwan? I mean, surely they must be looking at the kind of military problems that Russia's having, uh, the kind of... Um, support Zelensky is getting from the West and his sort of incredibly charismatic uh, communication strategy and the um, sanctions against Russia, they must be looking at that and thinking Taiwan. How do you think it changes their calculus? I actually don't think it changes their calculus much at all. Uh, I finished the book um, somewhere between Christmas and New Year last year, so there's a long slab, of the, long section of the book dealing with China's strategic priority with Russia and the extent of the Xi Jinping-Putin relationship and the um, fundamental Chinese strategic interests which were alive in the Russia relationship, which would never cause Xi Jinping to in any way um, walk away from Putin in these circumstances. And that analysis I don't change from. On the Chinese broader calculus of, um, let's call it Taiwan timetabling, um, despite what you correctly describe in my book about the success of China in uh, desktop war games between themselves and the United States, and reports that the United States has a similar experience in its own desktop uh, war games as well. If you read the Chinese classical military tradition um, and you read, for example, Sun Tzu's Art of War, uh, which is etched deeply in the political psyche of all Chinese political leaders. You know, you know the first verse of the first chapter, which is, quote, war is a major matter of state, never to be undertaken lightly. If you lose the war, you lose the state, unquote. So it's a pretty sobering way to start a book. It's like, it's not once upon a time, I met Uncle Fred and went you know, down to the beach and things got bad. It's basically, you do this and you screw up, you're gone. Now, that's very much in the cerebral cortex of Chinese political leaders, and the PLA in particular. So you might, as it were, win a desktop exercise. 
But in my analysis, China is not of the view that it has an overwhelming preponderance of force yet. Uh, and that is what it's seeking to do during the course of the 2020s. And for those reasons, I'm much more concerned about late 20s, early 30s for a Taiwan military scenario than I am about uh, excitable people predicting one tomorrow off the back of Ukraine while the Americans are preoccupied, etc. And there's a second reason for the delay as well, which does bear reflection with uh, the Ukraine experience. And that is the Chinese are aware that they remain, as of today, deeply vulnerable to US financial sanctions. They might win a desktop exercise on the military, but they know that the US dollar dominates the global financial system. And that if the US was to do to China what it just did to Russia and remove them from SWIFT, the US dollar-denominated international transaction system for the entire global financial and trade system, um, and secondly, embark upon broader financial and economic sanctions, China, as of today, is massively vulnerable. But if it, by decade's end it floats the renminbi when its financial system um, is the same size or slightly bigger than the United States, and if it then, under those circumstances, liberalise the capital account, then it ceases to be financially vulnerable. So I'm much more worried about where we'll be late 20s, early 30s, to be quite honest. Uh, and that's part of the reason for the book, which is to provide a joint strategic framework equally usable in Beijing and Washington to manage this decade of profound uncertainty between now and then so you do not have crisis and conflict and war by accident. Uh, and that's what I'm seeking to ameliorate in the framework I outline in the book. One of the things that I found very interesting was your view that Xi Jinping's real political vulnerability lies in his lack of understanding of economics. And now we're seeing this COVID zero policy rolling out throughout China. 45 of China's cities are already in some form of lockdown. Beijing is likely teetering on the brink of a lockdown itself. Um, and we're seeing, you know, sort of cries of dissatisfaction and real anger, um, even on China's very censored social media platforms. Do you think that this COVID zero policy risks a financial and economic crisis, particularly given that vulnerability? I think the um, period ahead under Xi Jinping's leadership, and particularly his non-familiarity with how a market economy works, creates a whole new vulnerability for China, which frankly did not exist prior to 2017. That was the 19th Party Congress. In Xi Jinping's first term between 2017 and 29, China kind of stumbled on with a series of low-level continued market economic reforms, imperfectly implemented and some of them not much at all. But that was the formal orthodoxy of continued reform and opening, the two terms which characterised Deng Xiaoping's uh, new orthodoxy from really 1978 onwards. But something changed at the 19th Party Congress uh, in 2017. And, uh, and if you're really nerdy on this subject, which unfortunately I've become quite nerdy, and there's about four of us who would appreciate the nerdiness of the conversation, the, um, they undertook uh, an ideological change at the 19th Party Congress 
in their formal ideological justification for the nature of economic management for the future. And the quick crude summary was that whole 40-year period of reform and opening, it's over. Ideologically, we had to develop, quote, the factors of production back then, Marxist concept. Now we must address the contradictions which arise with the relations of production, that is class inequality, coming out of the previous 40 years. And that has created the ideological headwaters uh, in late 2017 for this whole series of leftward moves on economic policy. State and enterprises revamped, private sector in the gun, tech sector in particular in the double gun, most recently the property sector, let's look at what's happening to Evergrande and the private sector. Xi Jinping saying it's all a fictitious economy, this private sector property stuff, not a real economy, which he describes as advanced manufacturing. The common prosperity agenda in terms of income distribution. All these have shifted the dial to the left, resulting in a slowing of the growth rate as the private sector just took fright. Then you throw in COVID and the lockdowns, which are now rolling across the country. So rolling into this November, my prediction for what it's worth is you're going to see a mother of all stimulus packages in the next six months to try and fill the growth gap, which is now emerging in the economy as they try to meet their 5.5% growth target. So the contradictions that we discussed before, you know, the dialectics we discussed before, move to the left, keep ahead of the game, don't allow a corrupt party to ultimately dissolve the communist state. Oops, when you do that, and you do that on the economy, uh, the private sector ceases to be happy, ceases to invest, and they now represent 61% of GDP. Oops, we've got a problem with growth. So this could unravel for the reasons that, uh, that you point to in your question. And how bad an unravelling do you think it could get? I mean, especially now we're seeing these, this government appears to be locked into this COVID-0 policy. Now there's three things going wrong, all three of which are Xi Jinping-induced. One is this set of left-leaning economic policies I've just referred to. Two, though not his responsibility directly because of his relationship with Putin, indirectly and tacit support for the invasion of Ukraine, that that of itself is pumping up commodity prices around the world, pumping up inflation, slowing economic growth and making the global economy more sluggish than it would otherwise be. And that affects in turn China's macro growth. And then COVID, of course, is the third one, where his policy is zero tolerance uh, as opposed to living with COVID. Put the cocktail together, it's potentially an ugly one, but this guy is a phenomenal Leninist. I mean, without ever having read Machiavelli, uh, he intuited it a long time ago. The control over the security apparatus, the police apparatus, the, the military, the, uh, the purging of anyone who looked askance at him in the corridor over the tea break. Sounds like the Labour Party. The, um, the, uh, it was a joke, it was a joke. Okay. <laughs> The uh, See, I had a go at Dutton, I had a go at us. I still think these, the Leninist control of the system enables him to dig in against these accumulating forces. But here's the, the kicker. When we look at the entrails of the 20th Party Congress this November, Xi Jinping on balance, in my judgment, is likely to be there and reappointed. But the open question is, 
does he get his way and sway with everybody else appointed to the Standing Committee of the Politburo, to the Politburo proper, Standing 7, the Politburo's 25, and the other 214 members of the Central Committee? Because that determines how much of a free agent he is for the next five years. And that, I think, is more the open question. So I'm afraid we've only got time for one last question. I mean, you talk about managed strategic competition, identifying strategic red lines between the US and China, finding hard limits, and making agreements that both sides can stick to. Now, I've just written a book about Hong Kong. You know, I think Hong Kong is a really instructive case. This is a case where China has bulldozed through its own red lines, you know, the joint declaration returning Hong Kong to China, which China drafted together with the UK in 1984. They agreed there would be no change for 50 years after Hong Kong's 1997 return. And yet we've seen massive changes, national security law imposed, politicians being thrown in jail, uh, still awaiting trial for holding primary polls, you know, all kinds of new speech crimes introduced, the court's independence totally undermined. How can China be trusted to find red lines and stick to them when it won't stick to its own red lines in the case of Hong Kong? In the case of Hong Kong, and I have an enormous soft spot for Hong Kong, having lived there, worked there, and our middle son being born there, it's because Xi Jinping concluded that the United States and the collective West under Trump or a bunch of pussycats. They just thought they were weak. Whatever screaming and shouting that you heard from Donald Trump or Mike Pompeo, when push came to shove and the debate about the passage of the national security law by the National People's Congress in Beijing, which surprisingly got through without a dissenting vote because to dissent would land you in jail. But prior to it being operationalised in Hong Kong itself soon after... The real question in Beijing was as follows. Will that bunch of American pussycats impose financial sanctions against the Chinese economy? And they didn't. Instead, what the United States did was identify the artificial here and there and impose sanctions against, against them. And so the deep calculus in Beijing was that this was a door which could be pushed open and walked through without any material response which would materially significantly damage the Chinese economy. And by the way, that's similarly the Chinese current view of European uh, objections to China's tacit support for Putin in Ukraine at present. Xi Jinping doesn't care about that at this stage, and there's a reason for it. He thinks the Europeans are a bunch of pussycats as well, and that when we get to next this time next year, whatever the status of Ukraine is at that stage and whatever frozen conflict we have in the Donbass and uh, Crimea and the land corridor perhaps between the two, uh, that the Europeans and the democratic world will then suffer from another bout of strategic amnesia uh, and then it'll all be back to normal. So it's quite a different argument to the one that I'm putting, which is to make clear to the Chinese, not through Dutton-esque, megaphone, domestically, politically self-serving crap what your fundamental red lines are, but through the highest levels of one-on-one diplomacy between the US Secretary of State or the US National Security Advisor 
and their Chinese counterparts to say that on Taiwan, our red lines are as follows. And not just in terms of what's often called the million man swim, which is the full amphibious assault on the island. It's all the sub-scenarios which I partly deal with in the book, which is what happens if a uh, trade blockade is imposed on Taiwan. What if there's a massive cyber attack against Taiwanese civilian infrastructure and cripples the energy sector? What if um, there is a massive uh, subversion of the Taiwanese political process? What if the Chinese decide to do a Putin and salami slice Taiwan by occupying Taiwan's offshore islands like Jinmen and Mazu? Which of those will invite a reaction from the United States? Or are we going to be left in this sort of ambiguity whereby the Chinese have concluded that within the ambiguity, the US and the collective West are essentially soft? So my argument is, in fact, the reverse to what you've inferred in your point, and that is it's based on uh, the, if you like, in part, on the, um, the, the extraordinary experience they've just been through with Hong Kong where nothing happened. Thank you to Kevin Rudd for taking the time to speak to us today and for launching his book tour here in Melbourne. Thanks, folks. I'm Grant Smith, and you've been listening to The Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Editing for this episode was by Andy Hazel, background research by Julia Bergen and Xu Chong, our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now.